0: So I've been traveling, I've been away for a few weeks, and while I was overseas, I got an email from a friend. And, uh, you know, the email was very short, very brief. It said, you know, America is falling apart here. (laughs) And uh, I I kind of uh, can somewhat sympathize with my friend. I think some of you can, and uh, certain events that were happening that were really disturbing to him one of them was how the IRS i guess was uh, seeking to deny nonprofit status to a Christian ministry because because it was teaching principles from the Bible and uh, this official at the IRS was saying that's too political so it was actually trying to deny nonprofit status i don't know if you heard about that case but this was upsetting to him and there was this uh, journalist who's from Pennsylvania writing in the Washington Post and advocating that <laughs> Um, we expose children to sexual acts, uh, like they should be more exposed to sexual acts. It's it's this kind of sexualization of children. It's a very disturbing thing. And uh, so my friend was feeling like, oh, things are falling apart. I don't know if some of you feel that way sometimes. I know some of you do. And you're wondering about certain things that are going on in the culture, and you're thinking, you know, this is actually, the culture is becoming hostile to the Christian faith. How are we to respond to that? What are we supposed to do in response? You might feel like you need to run and hide uh, because you, you're, you're, in a, you're in a minority. You're in a culture that uh, is maybe hostile to the things that you believe. Uh, how do we deal with that? Well, as we think about what our response should be and as we think about what it means to follow this one that we call the friend of sinners, actually the scripture calls the friend of sinners, and we're exploring that in this series here. Um, the answer for us this morning lies in a city in Israel. It's a very important city, but I'm, uh, it's likely you've never heard the name of this city. You don't know the name of this city. The name of this city is Sepphoris. and I want to show it to you this morning, if I can. Over there. Here, uh, here's an. Uh, site kind of an overview of the excavation of this city, which was an ancient city, and uh, it became something that really stood out on the map in AD six when Herod Agrippa decided to make this the capital of his tetrarchy of Galilee, and so he took all of the resources and poured it into the building up of Sepphoris for the next decade, really. And it became a, a city of about 30,000 inhabitants, and it was glorious. It was magnificent. He took all that he could to build, build up this city. So here we have a shot of the kind of main street, the promenade of, of Sepphoris, you know, uncovered. And if you could just imagine, not just two broken pillars, but whole lines of pillars along this street. It was just magnificent. It was glorious. And if you were going to Galilee, this is where you would want to go. And he did this very deliberately. Um, here's a shot, I don't know if you can see it well, but um, it's a kind of an excavation of one of the floors in Sepphoris in one of the buildings. And you see these elaborate mosaics across the floor. It just gives you an idea. This is their floors, because this is the, the things they were walking on had this elaborate um, detail. And you could just look at it closely. It's just magnificent, the artistry that was poured into this, They're doing this for a reason. He was doing this so you would look at Sepphoris and you would know who was in charge. You would know the glory of Herod Antipas's tetrarchy. I mean, I think maybe he was, maybe he was trying to be like his father. He's going to build a lot of great things, and so he, you know, here's a Roman theater at Sepphoris. You know, because there's no good city, no good Roman city without a Roman theater, and this was a big one for all those uh, people that were part of the city. And what I want you to see here is here's an aerial shot. And you can tell that Sepphoris is actually on a small mountain. He actually very deliberately laid it across this this hill. Um, And that was for a purpose. So you could see this from a long way away. All the glory and splendor of Sepphoris laid over this mountain. And what I have here for you is a shot of... That's how deliberate he's been laying it over. Uh, That shows us how important this city is for us. Because what you see here is Sepphoris in the foreground. This is the excavation of Sepphoris. This was called the Ornament of Galilee. It's written about by the first century historian Josephus. But what you see in the background is what I want to point out to you. What you see back there is a city. Can you see that In in the distance there over the top? There's a city in plain view. And that city you do know the name of because that city sits atop the ancient village or ancient town of Nazareth. That's the modern Nazareth. And uh, and it's sitting at the same site as the ancient Nazareth. And what I want you to see from this shot is that it's about an hour's walk from Sepphoris. which means you can see Sepphoris from Nazareth, right? So let's just say you were born in 4 B.C., and you were growing up again during the, during the time Herod Antipas, when he started this, 6 to 8 BC, 8 AD, excuse me, 8 AD, 6 to 8 AD, and did this for about a decade. Every day of your teenage years, as you were a teenager, you would get up and you would look across and you would see this city deliberately rising in front of you. In fact, if your father happened to be an expert in local building materials, he was likely conscripted to work on this city. He was likely, it was possibly the way that your family got your income, if you were this boy in Nazareth. Well, we know there was a boy in Nazareth who was born in 4 BC. And so if you think about it, every day during his teenage years, he would get up in the morning, and he would see this city rising in its glory, specifically being laid over a mountain. And, he, and this boy knew, just like everybody in Galilee knew, the reason. This city was there to show who was in charge. This city was there to show the glory of this tetrarchy. Okay. Well, this boy grew up. He started a ministry. He amassed a crowds of people, masses, great multitudes of people. And when he got them, he walked up a mountain to deliver a sermon and give some critical information to those who are his followers and he uttered these words please stand with me as we read from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5 this is the Sermon on the Mount and we're going to be reading uh, from Matthew chapter 5 verse, just verses 14 through 16 in the ESV version to your Father who is in heaven. This is the gospel of our Lord. May he praise to you, O Christ. Please be seated. Okay, so Jesus uh is giving us three images here of what we are as his followers, if you're a follower of Christ. And, you know, the middle one's a little bit puzzling. He's like, a city can't be hidden. And you're like, why does a city need to be hidden? Or why would a city not want to be hidden? I mean, you'd build a city for different reasons, right? You build a city maybe low in the valley because there's more water there. Or you build a city up high, right, to be on a place where it's easily defendable, right? Defensible. Why would a city not be hidden or want to be hidden or not want to be hidden And that's what I want to suggest to you is that was in Jesus Christ's mind was what he saw every day as a teenager growing up, is that a city of a certain type doesn't want to be hidden. That is a city that's there to show the glory of the one building it. The city is there to show who's really in charge. And that was Sepphoris. So what Jesus Christ, I would suggest to you, is doing is he's looking at his followers, and he's delivering this sermon, by the way, not too far still from Sepphoris. And he's saying, You're Sepphoris. You're this city that is built to show the glory of the kingdom. So when you feel like you're in a place, you don't know why you're there, you feel like running away and hiding, you can't. Because you're specifically put in this time, just as Sepphoris was specifically later. In fact, the way that he puts it, the way that it says it in the Greek is. You can't hide a city over a mountain laid, is literally what it says in the Greek. You cannot hide a city which is over a mountain laid, which is just the way Sepphoris was laid over the mountain so that it would show, it would show the glory of the Tetrarchy. And Jesus is saying that when you feel that, you and I feel like, well, I just want to check out. I want to, I want to somehow you know, like maybe form a Christian commune or somehow step out of this culture, says, you know, the reason that you're there is because you're there to show the kingdom. And so what I want to do with you this morning is talk about light and darkness because just as, you know, Sepphoris was the lamp of Galilee, show the glory of Herod, Your life, here and now, you need to understand it as a matter of light and darkness. And this is why Jesus says what he says. So three things about light and darkness, which I think brings out what Jesus is trying to convey to us. Number one, light is not contaminated by darkness. And number two, light does best (laughs) in darkness. And number three, light always has a source. Those are the things I want to talk to you about this morning. Number one, light is not contaminated by darkness. So When I got this email from my friend, I was kind of sympathizing because it, it actually brought me back to an earlier time in my life when my wife and I were making a decision about, a ministry decision, and we made the decision to move to New York City specifically Center City. So we were in Greenwich Village, Center City culture of of Manhattan. And when we did that, our family was very young, um, and we were being challenged by some friends of ours who were like, you know, you gotta think about your family. You gotta think about what it's gonna be like there. And you realize you're stepping into a culture that is really kind of anti-Christian really hostile to your faith, and you—you you really going to raise your family there? And actually, they were right, you know. In that time, there it really was—there really was a hostility toward the Christian faith. It was just the beginning when they were introducing a rainbow curriculum uh, into the public schools. And uh, you know, I used to go around and tell people, like trying to explain what it was like to live in Manhattan. It's like when you. When you say you're a Christian in other parts of the country, you know, like Pennsylvania, like people kind of get it. It's like you say, oh, I'm a Christian. It's like people are like, okay, I can get that. If you say that you're a Christian to someone in, in Manhattan, they look at you, you know, they cock their head, and they're like, did you go to school? You know, it was, it was like uh, they didn't really quite compute. It's really, really a hostile place. But we said that's why we need to be there because... That's where a light needs to be. So we didn't know if we were right when we made this decision. I will tell you now that for us, actually raising a family in New York City was one of the best places to raise a fully Christian family. And you say, what? Why would that be? It seems counterintuitive. Let Let me try to explain it to you. For example... Um, There was a craze that happened at that time. It was uh, this craze called phone sex. And uh, pornographers were beginning to realize you could actually make some money by having people have phone sex, and they needed to market this product. So the way they decided to market it was to print out these business cards. And these little business cards had a naked woman on it, and on the back it had... Like a phone number, you could call. You could just call easily and have, you know, some phone sex with this naked woman. And and then they decided they needed a way to distribute these cards. And so what they did was they went around to all the cars that lined the streets. They always have parked cars lining the streets in New York City, and they and they put the cards under the windshield wiper against the windshield of the cars. I'm not sure this was entirely legal, um, but. That's why they, uh, they always did it in the middle of the night. Like You never saw anybody do this. But in the middle of the night, they would go around, All the cars along the street, would have these little cards in a windshield uh, wiper. And then people would come out in the morning, and here on their windshield was advertisement for phone sex. And the people who were not interested in this product just said, Whoa, what is this? And they threw it on the ground and drove off to work. Well, then it would rain. So all of these cards would would wash into the gutter, into this kind of mush, this montage of naked bodies. And then someone like me would go out for a walk with my son. Like one day, I was like, let's go out for a walk. My young son is a little guy, Thaddeus. I said, let's go for a walk. So we're going out for a walk, and we're on the sidewalk. And he's a curious guy, because he's just a little guy. He's going over, and what's this in the gutter? That was a moment, I sympathize with my friend's email, because that was a moment I felt like, come on. Come on. Can't I even just take a walk with my son without being confronted by this debauchery? And I wanted to run away and hide at that point. But then, at that moment, something happened to which... I can only attribute the Spirit of God as the author, the illumination of Christ. So what I did was I really couldn't actually run away from that moment. So I walked over, you know, and knelt down with my son on the sidewalk, and I had a moment with him. I said, son, this kind of reminds us that all through your life, you are going to be at different times confronted with girls who, don't, who aren't wearing enough clothes. And because we are so easily excited by bodies, usually girls, we need to learn to guard our eyes. So let's take this time to begin to learn to guard our eyes because this is, such, this is gonna be an area that so quickly becomes a place where we are led into darkness. That this is something you need to think about. And will be thinking about all your life. Because you're going to grow up and you're going to get married. And the way you're going to love your wife is by making a decision every day to go to battle and guard your eyes. So let's let's learn how to do that now in guarding our eyes. I couldn't believe I was having this conversation with him. He was so it's just a little guy. But you know what? As I realize it now, this was the best time to be having a conversation with him. Before it was any issue for him. Like he could care less about a girl's body at that point, you know. But he could understand what it would mean that there are things that he should not look at. And that comes from a place in his heart. And so what I realized there is that I was being pushed into being the parent that I needed to be. And I never would have done that. I never would have, okay, this is something I should do. And you know what? That became a touchstone for the next few decades. I didn't know it at the time, but God knew it. I wasn't gonna just have one boy, I was gonna have three boys. And this became the discussion for the next few decades. The discussion had started that day. How are we doing with this? How are we doing with gardening our eyes? How are we doing with, with sanctifying marriage? How are we doing on this? Are we able to be doing this? You know, be, it was already an open discussion and it happened because of that. And that changed, that changed me that day because I, what I realized is that I was being pushed into being the parent that I needed to be. and wouldn't have been otherwise. And Jesus Christ was laying us as Sepphoris, a city on a hill. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. That's what Jesus is trying to say. Light is not contaminated by darkness. That's number one. Number two, light does best in the darkness. Some of you, I noticed for uh, the summer, some of you are taking camping trips. And what do you do when you do your camping trip, right? You get out your gear, you have your sleeping bag, and then one thing you wanna make sure that you have is a working flashlight, right? If you're going to camping, one thing you wanna have is a working flashlight. Well, you take out your flashlight and you go to check it, right? You go to test it, see if this is gonna really do the job for you, right? And you can't tell, because you're testing and it's 3.30 in the afternoon. You can't test a flashlight at 3.30 in the afternoon, right? You have to either go into a closet, you know, or wait till the nighttime to see if this is really going to be a working flashlight for you. Well, that's what God is doing. You know, what he says, Isaiah 42, very early on through the prophet Isaiah, he says, I will make you a light for the nations. Repeats in Isaiah 49, I will make you a light for the nations. And the way that I'm going to do it is put you into them so that you learn what it is to befriend sinners. And had we the time, had we the time, we could go through the Old Testament and look at the the times when God specifically takes people out of the covenant community, takes Israelites, and puts them in an alien pagan culture very instructive to see how they respond, to see what they do. So, for example, he takes Joseph, you know, the Old Testament character of Joseph. The whole end of the book of Genesis is about Joseph's story, right? And Joseph, through no choice of his own, thrust into this alien pagan culture. What a pagan culture. We call it Egypt. And what do we find? Joseph actually befriends the culture. It's like a predecessor of Christ. He becomes a friend of the Egyptian culture. And he becomes basically Egyptian, yet without compromise. He does it by affectionate restraint towards that culture. So much so that when you know, his brothers show up, they're actually eating a meal with him and they can't recognize him. It's their own brother, and they can't even recognize him because he has become so Egyptian. And at the very end of the book, we find, you know, it's very telling. Uh, We're told that the the last thing, last chapter, Joseph's father dies, and he goes to have a, a, a burial and a funeral for his own father, Jacob. What does he do? He takes him back to Canaan, takes him back. To his hometown, basically. He's, he's having a funeral, a burial for his father. Do you know what the people who are looking at him say? They look at him. These are people from his hometown. They look over and they say, Oh, those Egyptians are burying their dead. <laughs> those Egyptians are mourning. Looking at Joseph. Why? Because they can't tell the difference. He's become as Egyptian as the Egyptians. Yet, without sin. How could he do it? Very different attitude than the kind of attitude we tend to go into in regard to our pagan culture. Let's just take one more example. Who can can tell me another person you can think of from the Old Testament, you raise your hand, tell me another person who from the Old Testament thrust into an alien pagan culture and responded well, did this kind of thing? Well, uh, okay, I'll accept that answer. Dan, he's, he's using his alternate name, but actually his, his real name that he went by for most of his life is Belteshazzar. Belteshazzar, whom Paul knows as Daniel, was a guy who was, who was completely dedicated to the Lord. And yet, through no choice of his own, thrust into this pagan culture, what does he do? He becomes, he befriends the, the pagan culture of pagan cultures Babylonia. You know, we were looking at it this week, actually, in the staff meeting at Ironworks. One of the passages that shows us that Daniel actually has an affection for this culture. Even as bad as it was, he, and God, too, was able to look at this culture for some of the good things that were going on. That's what it is to be a friend. You recognize the good, even if you are able to restrain yourself from the evil. So Daniel becomes... More Babylonian than the Babylonians, he becomes the quintessential dream interpreter. If there's anything that Babylonian culture was about, it was about the interpretation of dreams. And they had these big tomes, these huge manuals that if you, you would study, if you were going to be a good Babylonian, you would know, know all these symbols to be able to respond, understand, and interpret dreams. And Daniel was able to do it even without the tomes. He did it by the Spirit of God. But God was equipping him, enabling him to be in that culture. So we could go on uh, uh, through this, we don't have time to do that. But you need to think about these things as you consider Jesus' words and you consider your place now what you're feeling when you think about your culture. You're, You're feeling like my friend in his email or like me on the sidewalk. Light does the best in his darkness. You are now in a minority culture. Does that mean that God has lost control? no he's he's testing his flashlights that's what you are it's flashlights well i feel like the spirit of god is in you you say i have a lot more to deal with sam than than you did it's not just porn in the gutter you know i have it, it sometimes i feel like my whole child's world my whole grandchild's world is in a gutter and how do I deal with some of these things as a parent well this is where you teach me this is where I know the spirit of God is going to be a light in you and we can we can certainly help you we can advise you, you can come to speak to me or Darren or one of the elders here we can say here's a biblical principle that we think of uh, in regard to this situation, like what do we do with cell phones and how do we handle this media and this, this type of thing, we can give you um, suggestions about this. But the Spirit of God really is in you to deal with the craziness of your particular time and place because you are separate, specifically laid out over a hill for this time. That's you. So light is not contaminated by the darkness. Light does best in the darkness and number three, light needs a source. So if you're sitting here thinking, you know, this is me, this is not me. I, I'm not feeling like I've been a light. This has not been my attitude toward the culture. I don't have this idea of befriending the culture, um, you know, looking at it with, a, with appropriate affection and restraint, be able to discern good and evil here. I don't, I don't feel like that, that's me. Um, just you're, I just want you to know you're in a very good place because you are, you are able to recognize in this place that you are not the source. And when you feel like it's, it's beyond you, you're right, it's beyond you. He wants to do something really bright inside of you. you know, I don't know if you noticed this, but Jesus is getting progressively more and more local in his images here like he starts out talking about the whole world you're the light of people even you to whom you don't know then next thing you know he's talking about the city and then he's inside the household you're a light in all three of these spheres and some of you are finding you know I need to be the light in my own family and I don't know how to do it you're in a good place you're in a good place because you are not the source and what he wants you to know is that light doesn't exist on its own. Now, you don't have sunshine without a sun. Okay? And if you, uh, you're not gonna have any light out of your flashlight if you don't have batteries, right, or a lithium ion charger nowadays. Everything's, everything's lithium ion, right? You better bring that charger. A light needs a source. So you're not the source. You know, Jesus, in this Sermon on the Mount, he gives us pithy sayings. He's summarizing a lot of things. And he later explains this teaching more in another place when he's teaching in John chapter 8. He says, you know who's the real light of the world? I am. I am the light of the world. And because I'm the light of the world, quote, whoever follows me will have the light of life, unquote. And that is, of course, how we become a light, is by means of his light. And he is a light. He can handle this. He can handle the things that are going on in this culture. Believe me, he can. You know, we really, um, we've kind of endorsed the chosen TV series here. We've even shown it on some uh, Sunday nights here. And uh, if you don't know, this is a TV series that made a few seasons now where they are, are doing the life of Christ, but they are trying to imagine what could have been the backstory of some of the characters. They're imagining the backstories of the characters so that when the words of Scripture are uttered or the, or the deeds of Christ are done, you, they really have a punch because you can see how they could be really meeting real needs of people. They do a very good job of this and they try very hard to stay within the boundaries of Scripture. One of the things that the Chosen does very well is portray. Jesus as winsome. You really see the winsomeness of Christ in their portrayal. You really understand why when Jesus pointed to someone and said, Follow me, they just (laughs) dropped whatever they were doing and they got up and followed him because you want to be with this guy. He's scary sometimes, but you want to be with this guy. That is the Christ. That is the friend of sinners. That's why we call him. That's why he was called the friend of sinners. In fact, there's one point where John the Baptist is talking to him in this this series, and he's questioning the mission and the way that Jesus is doing things, which is biblical. This actually happens in the Gospels. And then John the Baptist is saying, are you sure you're going to be friends with those guys, the, the religious leaders whom we know are hypocrites? And are you actually going to be friends? Are you going to be nice to the political leaders? Are you kidding? The Jesus' attitude is, you know, I am not going to turn away anyone who wants to be with me. And that's you. That's what's in you, the power in you. It's not you, but that light is in you. So, that's your calling, friends. Just be a light. Be a light with Christ's light. That's all. You will have great effect. I'll close by saying, you know, just telling you the end of that story. We, We did end up leaving New York City, but we left a light on when we left. When we left New York City, we left our son there. That little guy on the sidewalk, he actually grew up, married a Christian woman, and they are walking as lights. They went to college in New York City, in Manhattan. He still works in Manhattan, and they are walking as lights there befuddling a lot of people around them you know one of the things that that really befuddled people is because they were in Christ they had their lives together they were able to get married uh, while they were in college now God has different time frames for different people different uh, uh, ways in in which he wants to bring them into marriage but uh, though this isn't everybody's story but for them This was a way in which he was a light in them. They were just able to get married. They had a financial plan. They were able to get married in college. That, friends, is unthinkable in New York City culture, in Center City culture. You would never, ever be in a place to be able to get married that young. So they would go to parties, and people would be like not, they wouldn't believe when they said, oh, that's not my girlfriend. We're married. They'd be like, I don't believe you, you know, because people couldn't even conceive of that. As I said, not everybody's uh, story, but this is the way that God made a light in them. It was because on the sidewalk, made the decision, we made the decision not to run away. And that light was lit. God has this way in you. You are God's sephyrus. You're showing who's in charge, really. And the glory of his kingdom of grace but know this for sure. He has you right here in the here and now as his sephirists showing this. Not to run away, not to clamp up, not to get, get really stern with their culture who doesn't know their left hand from their right, but rather to befriend a sinner's. He's lighting the world with his light in you. Amen.